Ezra chapter 3 this evening, if you'll join me there as we continue our study through the book of Ezra together. We saw last time that after a 70-year period of captivity as the southern kingdom of Israel had been there in Babylon as the result of their disobedience to God after a 70-year period, as God had promised, uh, he then began a process of restoration at the end of that time of consequence that they suffered through, if you would. And the way that God brought that about, we were told, was that he stirred the heart of a pagan king. He stirred the heart of Cyrus. Uh, Again, the the Medo-Persian Empire had taken over the Babylonian Empire, who originally had brought the Jewish people into exile. And uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, of course, absorbed all of the exiles and the people that were conquered. So at this time, the Medo-Persians are reigning, and Cyrus was the king, and it says that the Lord stirred the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, in such a way that he recognized that he was actually directed by God to use his position and his role of rulership at that time to give the freedom to the Jewish people to go back to their homeland, to Jerusalem, to rebuild their temple, to restore their uh, possession of the city there in Jerusalem. Uh, He encouraged them to go. It says he wrote a a decree actually encouraging them to go and helping uh, those who couldn't go, that others were to try and support them financially and do what they could to encourage them. And we saw that, uh, though not all, a a small remnant, about 50,000 in total, went back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel, those who God's heart had stirred. Uh, They made that long 900-mile journey, and you can imagine how difficult that was. It wasn't an easy call to embrace, uh, but a lot of times when we follow God's calling, if a genuine call of the Lord comes upon our life, it's not necessarily a call to ease uh, or to convenience. Uh, The way of the cross is the way of denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus, and the Christian life is a call to sacrifice generally, and when we follow sometimes a calling of the Lord even more specifically, Specifically, uh, there's going to be a part of that that times requires something of us, a measure of sacrifice, even as our Lord made to be effective in his ministry. And so those who are willing to embrace that calling and take on that sacrifice uh, for seeing the higher call of God. Uh, packed up their belongings there in Babylon. No doubt they had become very settled and comfortable. Uh, Many of them probably even built houses, became profitable as they were there for, again, 70 years. That's quite a long time period to be in a foreign land. But a small remnant returned back. Uh, Chapter 2 gave to us the record of some of those who went back under the leadership of this man, Zerubbabel. And as we come to chapter 3 now, we begin to see them sort of beginning the process of why they returned back to Jerusalem answering God's call. It tells us in verse 1 that it was in the seventh month that it had come that the children of Israel were in the cities that the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. So take notice a few things here. First of all, we're told that the time period that this took place when they now come together and rally in the city of Jerusalem was during the seventh month. Now that would be around September, October, uh, our time frame according to our calendar. But the seventh month, if you remember from our prior uh, studies in the Old Testament, that was a very sacred month for the Jewish people. 
the seventh month was the month in which they observed things like the Feast of Trumpets. It was also when they celebrated the Day of Atonement or what we call Yom Kippur. That is that national holiday or holy day, if you would, where one time a year on a sacred and special day, the high priest with the blood of an innocent lamb, remember, would go into not only the holy place, but all the way to the rear of the temple, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and he would apply that blood of the lamb on the mercy seat there as a way of making atonement for the sins of the whole nation. Uh, And so it was a time when they reflected upon God, if you would, Uh, showing mercy to them for their sins as a people. It's also during that seven month as well. Thirdly, that the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated, and we'll see that in this chapter as well, that they reinstituted and celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. So uh, this seventh month was a very sacred month to the Jewish people because it was a month in which there was a lot of emphasis upon focusing on the Lord and putting the things of God first, no doubt three different occasions within just one month, the people, if you would, would take a break from their work. They wouldn't be out in their fields. They wouldn't be working their businesses. They wouldn't be doing their hobbies and all the things that you know we do in just everyday life. This was a month where there was a lot of time, effort, money, investment made into taking opportunity to seek the Lord. And to put the things of God first in their lives. So it's very fitting that it's on that says the seventh month that the children of Israel, this remnant that has now come back, it says gather together, verse one says, as one man to the city of Jerusalem. So take notice, it says they were in the cities and they gathered together in Jerusalem. Uh, And that indicates to us that when they returned back to the area, they didn't all settle into Jerusalem itself. It seems they settled in the surrounding areas of Judea and southern Israel. And now we see them coming together at this special time in a unified way to the city of Jerusalem to begin this rebuilding process of the temple. Uh, Very interesting that the Bible tells us in verse 1 there that when they came together for this if you would, work of God, it says they came together as one man. Uh, The the picture there is unified. There's a unity of spirit. They are of one mind, of one heart. They believe this is something that God has called them to do. And though they are all different, they're living in different locations. They have different, again, we saw in the last chapter, skills and abilities, but yet there's a unity among them where they're of one mind and one heart. They come together as one man to carry out this calling and really this uh, work that God has put upon their hearts to do together as a group of people. And I think it's a very beautiful reminder because uh, when the Lord calls us to do something, uh, it's important to recognize that God never really calls us to do things all alone. Again, the Bible repeatedly shows us pictures of, again, Ecclesiastes 4 tells us specifically that two are better than one for they'll have a good return for their work. Uh, you know, we see Jesus sending out the disciples and he sent them out two by two. That is, there, there was always, you know, an additional individual beyond just one. There was a sense of partnership. And when the Lord works and accomplishes his works, it's important for us to realize that God doesn't ever intend us to step into any work alone. Uh, he wants us to partner together with other people. And, and I think a lot of times there's a clear indication that God's hand at times may be in something when, when that begins to happen, where there is that unity of the Spirit and God begins to, to rally people around. And a lot of times the way it happens 
is God may put a, a burden or a vision or something upon the heart of an individual who initiates or steps into something, but then God rallies people around that individual who see the same calling and have the same heart for that. And, and then there's that unity of cooperation working together as we're going to see them here coming together as one man. Of course, for us, that happens in the church. Really, we come together as one man in Christ that we all love the same individual and we have the unity of the spirit and we all hopefully have the mind of Christ as we seek to do the Lord's kingdom work among the church. So they now come together in verse one and verse two tells us that then Joshua, the son of Jehozadak and his brethren, the priests, as well as Zerubbabel. And let's just get you. I know you're always thinking Barney Rubble, maybe because that happens to me. So let's just get that chuckle out of our little, again, our junior high mentality. I know everybody's struggling with that. Zerubbabel, I always, that happens to me when I read the Bible too, so I'll make you feel better. So Zerubbabel, remember, he was the one leading this first group that returned back. And it says, these leaders come together, and it says, they arose, and verse 2, built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So take notice, the first thing that they do is they don't begin to lay the foundation of the physical structure of the temple itself. That is what they went back for. Remember, they went back to rebuild the temple of the Lord that had been destroyed and burnt down with fire 70 years ago. They went back to, to build a temple. But notice the first thing they do it tells us in verse 2 is they invest the time, first priority, is to build the altar of God. Remember, the altar of God was actually that furnishing that was actually outside of the temple structure itself in the courtyard. But that was the place, what, where blood was shed. That was the place where offerings were made unto the Lord, where if you would worship transpired, that's what the altar represented. And I think it's very interesting that they recognize, you know what, we can worship without a facility. But if we have a facility and there's no altar and there's no worship, it's just a worthless building. And it's almost as if you can sense the hearts of the people. They realize, look, the first priority is we need to have our hearts connected to the altar, there needs to be the focus upon sacrifice, upon the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins, even as, honestly, the very root of everything that we do as God's people should be rooted in the exact same thing, in Jesus Christ and him crucified, and the shed blood of Christ. Because, listen, uh, nothing wrong with the physical components of the work of God, you know, a structure, a facility. They were rebuilding a temple. Again, nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. These are all tools and things that God uses. But if the temple, whether it was Solomon's temple or this temple, whatever, if there is a temple without the presence of God and without the worship of God and without the centrality of the focus upon the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins and that coming ultimately through our Lord Jesus Christ, then everything else is meaningless. It's just a nice building with stained glass windows, but there's nothing of substance inside. And so before they even begin to build the structure, the first thing they do is they actually construct the altar, it says, and they begin to offer burnt offerings 
to the God of Israel. They start to worship. That's their first priority. This is all about worship. It's about worshiping God, connecting with God, focusing upon him. As they build the altar, they begin to once again institute sacrifices, something that had not been done for decades. And now again, blood is being shed. The offerings are being made as God required as a way of worship towards him. And the first thing it mentions in verse 2 they were doing was offering burnt offerings. And again, remember, the burnt offering was the offering of consecration. It was that offering where, unlike some of the other times when they would make an offering and a portion of the uh, you know, animal that was roasted in the fire would be given to the priest and a portion of the worshiper and so forth, the burnt offering, the entire animal was put on the fire on the altar and the whole thing was just consumed and burnt in the fire. And it was a picture of consecration. God, I don't want anything. I want everything fully given over to you. It was, it was an offering of dedication. God, I want fully everything, every part of my life to be given over to you. And it's very beautiful to see that this was sort of the first thing that was initiated. God, we are here, and above all else, we recognize it's the shedding of blood that forgives our sin as sinners, and that's the root of the issue. God, we are guilty, sinful people. We need the forgiveness of our sins, and God, we are here for nothing else, above all else, but to worship you. And we just, we want you to have our lives, God. We want to give you worship. That's what we want more than anything. And I think it's a beautiful reminder. You know, so many times in spiritual life and in church function nowadays, a lot of times we're getting the cart before the horse. And we're focused on all these externals and all these other kinds of things. And we think we need this and need that. And a lot of times we, we can really invert the process. You know, the truth of the matter is what we need to do is get people worshiping the Lord. If we get people worshiping the Lord, all the other stuff gradually comes together in time. You know, you have a Bible and you have the power of the Holy Spirit at work and people who want to worship the Lord and focus on Jesus Christ and him crucified. A work of God can begin Uh, from that. Something beautiful can begin to happen, but that needs to be the focus and beautiful. They begin to do this. It says again, as it's written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Again, what is happening there? There's a return to obedience to the word of God. And you see how all these things, just reminders, this is a work of restoration, a spiritual renewal is going to begin to happen under the ministry of these things and Ezra. And again, what's happening? There's worship. There's a return to the word of God, obeying scripture once again. There's a rebuilding of the altar and the worship life, restoring worship back to the people that had been lacking among them. And verse 3 tells us that though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases. Now, that's interesting. Set the altar on its bases almost gives the impression that maybe there was something still left there of the base and the foundation of that old altar that was there again many decades ago. It says they set the altar back on its bases and they offered, again, burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings so verse 3 indicates to us how though they were taking a step of faith and this was a major step of faith again they left all their comforts and everything they knew in babylon and they were journeying to a land where it was completely unfamiliar to them they were taking a major step of faith here as they were following god's calling and look anytime we take a step of faith there is always going to be mingled within that a measure of human fear still It tells us here that fear came upon them because of the people of those countries. They were in a land that was very foreign to them. 
They were hearing languages they never heard. They were seeing, you know, things they had never, you know, experienced before. This was all foreign and brand new, and it was a little bit intimidating. And I think it's important for us to recognize in our humanity, sometimes if God calls us to take a step of faith in our life, it's okay at times for there to be a measure of fear in that. It doesn't mean that just because we're having a little bit of fear apprehension that it's not something of walking in faith. Part of stepping out in faith is kind of stepping forward into the unknown and trusting God and realizing you don't have everything put together. Again, the Bible says faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen. So it is a little bit difficult to do that, but nonetheless... We have to continue to walk in faith and kind of push through those fears and continue to trust the Lord. And that's what they were doing. And the way they centered themselves was they continued to put their eyes on the Lord. And though they were dealing with the fear of the people around them, it was a little scary. It says they kept focused on the Lord by offering burnt offerings to the Lord. Notice verse three, both morning and evening. Again, we read of this back in Numbers chapter 28, where God there prescribes, again, in the word of God, that they were to offer regular offerings on a daily basis. There was the morning offering and the evening offering. And again, I think it's just a a fantastic reminder of the heart of God, of what he wants for us in regards to the connection to him. Let me read you Numbers chapter 28, verse 3. God says, And you shall say to the people, This is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord, two male lambs in their first year without blemish, day by day as a regular offering. The one you shall offer in the morning, the other lamb you shall offer in the evening. But again, do you see what God prescribed for the people? Consistent, daily, regular worship. God said these were the regular offerings day by day, one in the morning, one in the evening. And I can't think of a better way to start the morning and to end the evening day by day than to give your time and your attention to the Lord. To to take some time in your morning, some time at least in your day, and to give some attention to worshiping the Lord. And, and that's what God wanted because God wanted something relational with the people. He didn't want them just once a week or twice a week, just kind of checking in or, you know, going and visiting God on the holidays periodically when everybody gets together at the church. God wanted regular daily worship that is staying in fellowship with him. And I think it's important for our spiritual lives to be healthy, that there be a, an aspect of that, that regular offering of worship and spending time with God. Certainly a great way to begin the day and end the day is to put our attention upon the Lord for some portion of our time. Verse 4 it says, And they also, as well, kept the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, notice, as it is written. So again, this constant emphasis to obedience once again to the Word of God. And they offered the daily burnt offerings in the number required by the ordinance for each day. So again, observing the Feast of Tabernacles, that was one of those three mandatory feasts, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Tabernacles was, remember, the celebration of God's preservation as they wandered through the wilderness for 40 years that God sustained them as they built booths and they lived out in the middle of the wilderness and wandered through the desert. And it says for 40 years, their their clothes never wore out, their shoes never wore out. I mean, and I wish I had that miracle raising three daughters. That would have been the bomb right there. I mean, 40 years, 
They wandered through the wilderness. Nobody needed new shoes. Nobody needed new clothes. I mean, and God just preserved them and he took care of them. And so tabernacles was a reminder of the faithfulness of God, that God just kept them and preserved them in the midst of things. And remember, he was even preserving them in the midst of their failures. That's what's even more incredible is that though they had, in a sense, wandered for 40 years, that was because of their mistakes. And even in the midst of their mistakes, God was still taking care of them. He was still being merciful to them and sustaining them. And, you know, it's a great encouragement to realize that God changes not. And God can sustain us and preserve us, whether we're wandering through a wilderness for a season of our life. And maybe even sometimes if we find ourselves wandering around the wilderness and struggling because maybe we even made some poor choices and got ourselves in that situation. God is a merciful God who can sustain us and preserve us. And this is what the Feast of Tabernacles was a, a way for them to commemorate. They remembered that when they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles. And no doubt this was a good reminder to the people as they've now journeyed back from Babylon. They've come back to Jerusalem. They're 900 miles away from everything they know. You know, it, it's a new surrounding. They're wondering this place is burnt down. Again, remember the city was destroyed. It was rubble. They returned back to basically, it wasn't like, you know, they went somewhere and had a nice little setup. They went back to a city that was like a war zone. And God's saying, do you remember how I sustained you for 40 years? I can do it again. I can take care of you again. You, you reflect upon that. I took care of your forefathers for 40 years. I'll take care of you in this. I'll sustain you in this. I'm the same God who's great as my faithfulness, and, and I'll take care of you and provide what you need as you stay on track with what I'm calling you to do. Verse 5, it says, And afterwards they then offered as well the regular burnt offering for those of the new moons and for all the appointed feasts of the Lord that were consecrated and those of everyone who willingly offered a free will offering to the Lord. So they're just, again, continuing to observe these different aspects of the Old Testament that God had prescribed for them as a part of their worship. And verse 6 says, And from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. Again, notice verse 6. Although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So, Though they had not even laid the foundation stone yet at this point, there was worship taking place, their hearts were engaged, they were having an experience with God, and it wasn't about the structure, it wasn't about the material things. The lack of structure, the lack of material things did not prohibit spiritual experience for God's people. And again, j just a great reminder, certainly did God ultimately want to build the temple? Yes. Did God ultimately lead them to build the temple? Absolutely. But we have to be very careful. You know, sometimes we make all these excuses. What's prohibiting my spiritual life? What's hindering my worship life? Why well, don't I have this? Why well, don't I have that? Well, until this happens, then that can't happen. And God, no. They hadn't even laid the foundation stone yet. And they were worshiping God, obeying God's word, experiencing God. Uh, it's very, very simplistic to be able to have experience and relationship with God. And these people understood that's the crux of the matter right there. An experience with God. That's what he wants, that we would be having experience with him, even though certain things may not be where we want them to be. Or maybe we're not at this spot yet in the time <laughs> process of how things are going. So here they are from the first day worshiping and offering, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. And verse 7 says, They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters, 
and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring up cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. So verse 7 records how they were compensating uh, those who were gathering the materials to reconstruct the temple now, the, those who would actually do the work, the stone workers and the carpenters, as well as, notice, just like in the days of Solomon, uh, they were acquiring that cedar from up in Lebanon from the people of Tyre and Sidon who were bringing down those cedar logs for them, and it says they were doing these things according to the permission which they had received from Cyrus, king of Persia, who had sent them there. You know, it's interesting. Some say that word permission there in verse 7 could actually be translated as well, the idea of what we would think of today as, as grant, according to the grant of Cyrus, king of Persia. Because remember, Cyrus seemed to make some effort to help facilitate not just giving permission, but even provision for this to happen. And again, so, so here they are in a sense, you know, orchestrating these things, making sure they're being good stewards and compensating those who are doing the work and gathering the materials correctly. And verse 8 then says it now was in the second month of that second year of their coming. So again, you could tell there was a season of preparation. There's been a time gap. They didn't get there and it happened overnight. This was a process of getting prepared, focusing, getting themselves ready spiritually. They had to acquire all the you know, the, the supplies and so forth and gathering the right people together. It was a process of preparation God took them through first. And now it was now in the second month of the second year of coming to the house of God at Jerusalem that Zerubbabel and Jeshua, it says, and the rest of their brethren, the priests and Levites, and all those who had come out of the captivity to Jerusalem began work and appointed the Levites from 20 years old and above to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. And then Jeshua with his sons and brothers, Cadmiel with his sons and the sons of Judah, they arose to oversee those working on the house of God, the sons of Henadad with their sons and brethren, the Levites. So uh, the process actually initiates now. At this point, as we get to verses uh, eight and nine, we're told after a time of preparation they actually then begin the process. So the work now actually begins. And as we've often said before, you know, there's a time to pray and there's a time to prepare and then there's a time to do something. And they got to a certain point where they had prayed and they had prepared and things had come together. And, and now it was time to actually to begin to step into doing something. And, you know, when we seek to obey the Lord and answer God's call, that's that's a part of the process sometimes. We can pray and, and prepare and do all the things that we should do to be good stewards, but then there comes a point in time where you actually got you to do something. You got to initiate activity. You need to act upon it, put it into practice. So they now begin the work. And notice they begin to work. And it's interesting, verse 8 and 9 tell us that they establish those to oversee the work. And notice it says in verse 8, the end of it there, it says they appointed the Levites who were 20 years old and above to oversee the work on the house of the Lord as it was being reconstructed, the temple. Now, remember, under the Mosaic law, we're told that the Levites, who were the chosen tribe, remember, to be the ministers among God's people, those who were to do the spiritual work of ministering to the people of Israel, that they were to begin their ministry at age 30. 
That was the age where they were to enter into their ministry. In the days of David, remember, David adjusted that starting age down to 20 years old and had them actually begin to engage in the work of the temple and temple service and so forth at the age of 20. And here uh, they go with that lower age. And not only do they go with that lower age, but it says not only did the 20-year-olds have freedom to engage and to help in the work, but it literally says, and the Holy Spirit wrote this, not me, that the 20-year-olds who were Levites and up were actually serving as overseers. They were actually providing oversight, not just engaging, but they were actually providing oversight in the temple work, in the rebuilding of the work of the house of the Lord. Again, just a great reminder, you know, even as Paul says to Timothy in the New Testament, let no man despise thy youth. You know, apparently from God's perspective, somebody who's 20 years old and loves the Lord and knows the word of God and is filled and anointed with the Holy Spirit uh, can engage in his work and even help provide oversight in his work and take leadership and initiative. God can use them. And here these Levites were 20 years old and above, and they were overseeing the work of the house of the Lord. Verse 10 says, and then when the builders finally laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, and that must have been a special day as that kind of foundation stone went into place, everything they had went back there for, it's all kind of culminating now. When they laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel, their special apparel that they wore, and the trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph together with the symbols to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, it says, verse 11, praising and giving thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And then all the people shouted with a great shout. And when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. So as they lay that foundation stone, notice it is a celebration. And I imagine it was. And notice it was a celebration about being excited about how good God was and how the Lord had shown them mercy and faithfulness for them to be able to return back and to do what they were. Again, they were fully aware that they had no merit or worth, or in any way deserve to be able to experience what they were experiencing. They had sinned greatly against God as a people. The, the, the testimony of the state of Jerusalem, the city being in rubble like a war zone, and the old temple being broken down and burnt with a fire was a testament. This is what you did. You burned your life. You, you broke down the walls. You ruined things because of your sinful actions and disobedient acts against God. And this is what you did. You, you, in a sense, took what was a good and wonderful thing. Remember, that, that was the Temple of Solomon. You remember how fancy the Temple of Solomon was? I mean, the Temple of Solomon, people say by modern estimates, which isn't even really that large of a structure, you know, was estimated to have had put into it anywhere from five to eight billion dollars worth of wealth. That's what got trashed by Nebuchadnezzar when he came into the city. And now it's all a bunch of burnt up rubble. And so when they went back, there was this real sense in their minds as God not only brought them back and they're looking at all this as a constant testimony, this, this, yeah, this is what you created. Your life is ashes and rubble and it's all burnt and charred and it's an absolute mess. But God says, but now we're going to rebuild that. 
Now we're going to start all over and we're going to restore everything that you ruined. And we're going to rebuild it. And we're going to do something wonderful with your life again. So as they come back and they're recognizing what God's doing and giving them an opportunity to reinstitute the wonderful things that God wanted for their life and to rebuild, it says, as they lay down that first foundation stone, the people just begin to sing responsibly. It says they just begin to worship the Lord, praising and giving thanks. Lord, you are so good. You're so good, Lord, that you would do such kind things for us and your mercy, Lord, that you've shown. Lord, we don't deserve any of this, but yet you're so merciful that you're willing to do this. And it says the people were just so enthusiastic. Again, this wasn't just a, a pep rally of trying to work up energy. This was the people were genuinely excited about God, so much so that it says they're singing responsively, they're playing instruments. It says all the people shouted with a great shout as they praised the Lord because they were so thrilled about what God had done and what God was now doing. They sensed that this was the beginning of something very wonderful as the foundation was being laid among them. Now, here's what's interesting. Look what happens in verses 12 and 13. Here they are excited about what God's doing. They're celebrating this new temple is about to be built. The work of God is beginning to start among them. But verse 12 says, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's houses, old men, it says, who had seen the first temple. That is those who had apparently left the land of Israel when they were probably children and then spent the full 70 years of captivity and now have come back, but they had seen Solomon's temple. They saw that glorious temple that existed in Solomon's day. That's what this is describing. It says the older men who had seen the first temple, they wept aloud with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes, yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard afar off. So notice, you have two things happening here. You have one group who has come back, and they are just excited about what God's doing. And as the temple foundation is being laid, they're like, this is incredible. God's doing something. And they are stoked and really excited. God's going to do something incredible. And they're all energized and you know thrilled about what God's about to do. And then you have the older group who can look back with, if you would, you know, more in the rearview mirror. And they say, yeah, but if you knew what it was like in the good old days. Oh, man, I mean, this measly temple and this rubble and this i mean this is nothing like i mean if you saw what it was like in the good old days with solomon's temple man now that was really something and all those good old days and so they actually start to cry others are worshiping and celebrating and they're excited about what god's doing in the present and now here are people poo-pooing and crying and upset and saying oh but i mean I mean, this is nothing compared to what we used to experience. This is so small. This is so insignificant. I mean, it doesn't have all the extras and the bells and the whistles. I mean, all we have is some stones. Where's all the glitz and all the great wonder? And, and, and they're beginning to weep and to cry as others are trying to celebrate and worship. And you kind of have this conflict that's going on here and you know, interesting, you read the book of Haggai and God ultimately raises up a prophet to rebuke those 
who were saying that, who were kind of looking back and complaining and upset and kind of discouraged because they were so focused on what God did in their past. And, and again, Solomon's temple was a great thing, but they were so focused on what God had done, they were failing to appreciate and recognize what God was trying to do. You know, one of the greatest mistakes we can make sometimes that hinder what God's wanting to do in the present is we are so caught up in daydreaming about all the great stuff God did in the past. Oh, well, you know, remember what God did back in this generation? Oh, wow. And, that, and oh, that, that was, but now look, just, I mean, this is nothing compared to that. And, and we fail to appreciate or be enthusiastic about what God wants to do in a sense. I think we can almost quench the spirit of God in the present moment because we are so focused on what God did in the past. And it's a very common thing that we all can do where we're just kind of reflecting too much on the good old days. And maybe they were good old days. But the point is, is the Bible tells us this one thing I do, Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead. And be very careful if if your primary excitement is about what God used to be doing in your life or some way God was working in your life or maybe some old experience in your spiritual life or, oh, I was a part of this group or, oh, man, I used to be a part of that church and that church was happening. And, and, and if that's where your focus is, you're really going to rob yourself of the opportunity to be open to what God wants to do now. And here there was this sad experience where some were very excited. Others were, you know, kind of just discouraged because they remembered everything about Solomon's temple. And the reality was, is God rebukes them through the prophet Haggai during this time. Because God says, do you see this little measly thing? Through Zechariah, God says, don't despise the day of small things. And he was talking about this temple that they were now rebuilding from rubble. And the reason why is God ultimately says through Zechariah and Haggai, look, this new temple is going to have a greater glory than even Solomon's temple. And it wasn't that the structure itself was better. What was going to have a greater glory is Jesus was going to show up in this temple. Jesus wasn't in Solomon's temple. And, and he, so God says a lot of times our perspective, you know, we can view things from a wrong perspective. We want to stay current with the Lord and be excited about what God's doing and trust in what God's doing and experience it to the fullness. So you have kind of this conflicted thing happening. And if that's not enough, it tells us as well here in chapter four that when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and spoke to them. So take notice what's happening. And this is a common pattern. When there is a work of God, there is always going to be an opposing work of the adversary, of the enemy. It says the adversaries of Judah. The word adversary speaks of an enemy, someone who is opposed someone who's trying to hinder and stop something. And these adversaries now come because they hear that they are building the temple of the Lord. They're hearing that God's work is getting momentum. They're hearing that God's starting to do something and God's people are doing what he wants them to be doing. So they now come to seek to bring opposition as adversaries and enemies of the people of Judah, even as the Bible tells us spiritually as well. That we, First Peter 5 says, are to be sober and vigilant because we have an adversary, the devil, who's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And I tell you this, when you begin to start building yourself up in your most holy faith, as Jude talks about, 
Our bodies are the temple of the Lord now, or when you start to build and invest into the work of God, you can rest assured there's going to be opposition from the adversary. It's going to happen. He will begin to come and try and bring conflict to bring resistance to that. So they came, and notice they came to the Zerubbabel, and they said to him, let us build with you. For we seek your God as you do and have sacrificed to him since the days of Eshaharden, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So what they do is they come up and they say, look, let us partner together with you. And they identify themselves as those who were brought up by the king of Assyria and put there in the land of Israel. Now, that, that reflects all the way back to the time of when the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom, and a part of what they would do when they conquered territories is they would then take people and disperse them in all types of different lands so they had no sense of national identity and they could never regroup and revolt. So this is a group of people who we ultimately know as the Samaritans. Jesus speaks about them in John chapter 4. We have that passage there where there's the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And Samaritans were basically those who were, many of them, half-Jewish, and half another nationality, and they originated basically from some of those people from other nations being left in the land of Israel, and then ultimately God's people marrying and intermingling with them. And so here you have this group of individuals who don't know Yahweh God in a personal way, and they say, look, we want to partner with you to build with you, and we sacrifice to your God just as you do. Well, that was sort of a half-truth. They may have sacrificed to Yahweh God in that land because they heard he was the God of the land, but they also sacrificed to all kinds of idols. And they offered offerings to Yahweh God, but they served all their gods and idols. And now they want to partner with the people of God and partner in the work of God, and they want to come and kind of bring themselves together and unify themselves, but what they're bringing in is not a pure form of worship. It's something that's mingled with other ideas and worldly patterns and demonic things. And they, hey, let, let's just join together. Let's join forces. Let us help you out. We, we can give you a hand. Looks like you got a big construction process. Let us build with you. But Zerubbabel, showing great wisdom as a leader, and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. But we alone will build the house of the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So notice, Zerubbabel shows wisdom in the sense that he recognizes is that partnering with those who are not in tune with God, who are not consistent in their belief about God, who those are not who, in a sense, led by the spirit of God as they were. He says, look, that would be a prescription for major problems. And he says, we can't mingle those things together. Now, pragmatically, I'm sure there were people saying, look, this is a big project. Let's take any help we can get here. Why would you turn down help? You know, anytime, sometimes when you step into doing something for God, typically, like Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. And so sometimes God's people have a tendency to make the mistake to take any help they can get. Hey, if you're, if you're breathing and you're willing to help, sure, come serve. Be careful of that. God can provide the laborers and the workers to do his work. God can finance his work, and God will always provide the right workers to do his work. But you want to make sure that they are spiritually directed people if they're going to be participating in the work of God. And so Zerubbabel here says, look, that may sound practical, but it doesn't line up 
spiritually. And he says, so we can't do that because he knew if he began to partner with them before he knew it, they'd be socializing with them. Their kids would be intermarrying and they would be all intermingled with idolatry and all kinds of other things. So he he draws a line and he says, look, God will take care of us. We're going to do what God told us to do, but we're going to do it according to the leading of the Lord. And he declines their offer of partnership. Well, they don't take too kindly to that. So again, if the enemy can't join you, then he'll try and destroy you. Verse four says, then the people of the land show their true colors. They tried to discourage the people of Judah and they troubled them in the building and they hired counselors, it says, against them to frustrate, it says, their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So notice, the enemy can't get them to compromise by partnering together, so he begins to take other avenues to try and bring resistance. He tries to use the tool of discouragement. They seek to discourage the people from doing what God told them to do, and then they try and trouble them in the process. And then it says they hire counselors to make accusations against them, to try and frustrate their purpose. And again, I have these terms circled in verse 4 and 5 because these are the tactics of our adversary as well. This is the tool that our adversary often uses to try and stop what God wants to do in our lives and through our lives. To seek to bring discouragement, to get you to give up to get you to toss in the towel, to try and just make it troublesome, to do things to frustrate you in the process to where you just say, this is too hard, too difficult, and I'm too discouraged, and you just stop being open to what God's doing. And beware of that. These are often tactics of our enemy as well, even as these enemies were trying to use these things. Now, notice verse 5 says that they seek to do these things And this happened, it says, all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, that's who sent them there, even until, notice verse 5, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So this spans multiple reigns of the Medo-Persian Empire, what's being described there. And verse 6 down through verse 23 in this chapter are, are somewhat of a parenthetical section. Difficult to kind of understand, but what's described in verse 6 through 23 is sort of just a broad brush example of some of how this activity happened for years and years beyond this, all the way out through the days of Nehemiah when they were actually building the walls of the city and actually reconstructing the city as well. So what he describes here is sort of just an example of how some of these things, the discouragement and the trouble took place against them. So let me just read to you, if I could, from verse 6 down through verse 23 as we kind of tie this up. This is one of the examples by, again, a letter and different things to try and trouble that they sought to do. And we'll conclude there with verse 24 as it kind of really comes what would be after as described in verse 5. So it says it was in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, there's another emperor described, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days then of Artaxerxes, that's another ruler, also Bishlam and Mithredeth and Tabel and the rest of their companions, they wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, a letter written in the Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language, a language similar to Hebrew, but yet different. 
Verse 8 says it was Rahum, the commander of Shimshai and the scribe who wrote a letter against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in this fashion. So we're now going to see the letter that they wrote posting their accusations against them to the reigning king to try and get them to be hindered in what they were doing for God. Verse 9 says that the letter said from Rahum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Dionites, and I am not going to try and pronounce the rest of those names. The bottom line is they're name dropping. They're name dropping. That's what they're doing here to try and have credibility. The rest of the nations, the great noble O-Snapper took captive. It's like a neat name, O-Snapper. Everybody beyond the river. Verse 11 says this was a copy of the letter. So they drop all these names to sound credible. And here's their complaint and accusation to King Artaxerxes. From your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, that's beyond the Euphrates, let it be known to the king, the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem and are building the rebellious and evil city. Now take notice, that didn't happen until the days of Nehemiah. They're just there building the temple, as I said. So this is an example, as I said, of something that happens further out. For some reason, the Holy Spirit just historically gives us this one example of really something that was happening in the days of actually Nehemiah, as we'll see when we get to his book. Because the complaint is they're building not the temple, but an evil and rebellious city and finishing the walls and repairing foundations. Let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls are completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. So, king, if you let this construction process continue, he says tax revenue is going to drop. Now, you got any politician's attention at that point. Verse 14, now because we received support, they say, from the palace, it was not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king that search may be made in your book of your records of your fathers, and you will find in the book of the records and know that the city is a rebellious city, harmful to kings and provinces, and they have incited sedition within the city in former times, for which cause this city was destroyed. So interesting what they do. They drum up from the past the sins of Israel. Again, Israel had some great kings, but they did, as we saw in our study in First and Second Chronicles, they did have a few kings that were rebellious against the Babylonian empires when they were conquered and trying to be controlled. So they say, hey, check your records. There's been some evil, rebellious people who've reigned over this territory. That's why this city was destroyed. So verse 16, we inform the king of this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed. The rest will be that you will have no dominion beyond the river. So again, they dig up their past sins as accusation against them to try and get them stopped from doing what they're doing. And you know what? Listen, folks. That is exactly how the devil, our adversary, is going to orchestrate one of his main forms of resistance against your life. He's going to dig up your past failures, and he's going to throw them in your face. And he's going to continue to document them and identify them and remind everybody around you of your past sins and your past failures to try and use the reality of your past mistakes as a way to prohibit you from what God wants to do in your present life. Be aware it's going to happen. The Bible says that the devil is the accuser of the brethren. You know what? But the Bible also tells us that we have an advocate, a defense attorney, Jesus Christ. And it's his blood that cleanses all of our failures. And our righteous standing comes from him. 
not from the reports of the accusations of our past failures from the devil. So you believe what Jesus says about you, not what your adversary is trying to drum up about your past and his accusations. Well, the king, upon getting this letter, answers in response, saying, look at verse 18, the letter which you sent has been clearly read before me. And I gave the command and a search has been made. And it was found that this city in former times has revolted against kings and rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. And there has been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over the region beyond the river and tax and tribute and customs were paid to them. Now give the command that these men may cease that the city may not be built until the command is given by me. In other words, go and stop the construction process. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to the herd of the kings? And the copy of this letter was read before those who were there, and they went up and hasted Jerusalem against the Jews, and by force of arms, they literally with you know, weapons went up, and they restricted them and made the work cease. Now, verse 24 really is honestly, as strange as it sounds, what picks up at the end of what was going on back in verse 4 and 5, which was the seeking to frustrate the work of God to rebuild the temple. And notice, that's why it says, verse 24, thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, the temple, that work ceased. And it was discontinued until the year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So again, verse 24, a sad testament of something that happened when God's work was beginning to unfold it says the work of the house of God ceased and was discontinued. Now, commentators dispute here in regards to how long the work was discontinued and ceased. Some say it was a matter of years. Some say up to 14 to 16 years. I, you, when you try and factor in the different reigns of these individuals and the fact that you have multiple people with the same name, it's really tough to be dogmatic. The bottom line is what the Holy Spirit's trying to show us here is that the enemy brought opposition and the work of God ceased and it was discontinued and God's people walked away from what God was doing and they let God's work cease and lie dormant for a while until it was reestablished by the Lord. And you know what, folks, whether it is some work of God that he's trying to do through his people or whether it is a work of God he's trying to do in his people. Because again, we are the house of God. We are the temple of the Lord. Don't let the enemy succeed by making his work be discontinued in your life. God's working in your life. There are things that God is doing in your life. There's a move of God's spirit taking place in your life, or you wouldn't be sitting in a church tonight on a Wednesday night when you could be watching who knows what. You're sitting in a church on a Wednesday night. God's spirit is doing something in your life. There is going to be an effort to try and make that work cease. Don't let it. Don't let it. You let God work and don't let the enemy hinder what God is doing in your life. Amen. Let's stand together.